Amen. Because that is true, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. I'll say a word in a moment about the context that brings us to this point, just in way of uh, a really candid review of the first four chapters. I realize that we're kind of jumping in right here in our reading, kind of to the middle of a story, but I invite you in Exodus chapter 5 to look with me at verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in you, Pharaoh. It's in your own people. But here is Pharaoh's response. You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. But you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. They said to them, The Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you even send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will deliver them out of his land. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. Might he bless it in our lives. You can be seated. Children, you could be dismissed to Children's Church. For the rest of us, we continue with what we started in last Sunday, a sermon about the commission of God that requires supernatural intervention. The commission of God that requires supernatural intervention. We saw last week that what God had sent Moses to do, he had commissioned him to go and perform, and what he commissioned him to go and perform was going to require supernatural intervention. Today, as we walk through it, we'll find two cases of what is not supernatural intervention and then one evidence of what is. Two cases of what is not adequate to accomplish the commission and then one that definitely is. So could I take just a minute, like I said before, and let's, let's just think back through the last four chapters. In chapter one, we find that there is a new pharaoh Not like the one Joseph had known. Not one who was sympathetic at all to the unique place of the people in the land of Egypt. 
but one that was very hostile and, quite frankly, terrified of how many Hebrew people there now were in the land of Egypt. He felt it to be a threat to the national security of the country. And so he has a plan and says, we're going to kill all the baby boys. Well, there are women who intercede and intervene and protect the boys. The women, namely, are midwives. Those who come to deliver the children weren't going to do as Pharaoh said and kill them, but were instead going to allow them to live. There was Moses' own mother and sister. There was Pharaoh's own daughter. And all these women were used so that Moses and babies like Moses wouldn't die, wouldn't be thrown into the river, but instead would survive and and live. Moses is instead adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up in a very Egyptian culture. But as a young man, uh, one day he sees a Hebrew man being oppressed and beaten. And he intervenes and he kills an Egyptian soldier. And he becomes a wanted man. And he runs for his life. And he winds up in the land of Midian. And there he meets a man named Jethro. Ultimately gets married to Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. One day while he's shepherding, he hears the voice of the Lord coming from a fire in the middle of a bush that's not being burned up. And when he goes to see the thing, the voice says, stop, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. And we learn right away that in chapter 3 and 4, we're hearing the verbal revelation of God himself speaking to his servant Moses. And we studied for some weeks the unique and sometimes frustrating dialogue between Moses and God, this theophany narrative. And what was frustrating about it wasn't what God said, it was what Moses said, objecting to God's revelation frequently, sometimes saying humbly, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Sometimes saying arrogantly, honestly, who are you anyway? Like the question of who will I say has sent me has some undertones of, come on, you're kind of new around here to most of us. Will your name carry any weight with the people you're telling me to go make demands to? And so we see in Moses this mixture of humility, like I'm not really worthy for this, which resonates with us. But we also see like this, this debate where Moses is saying, I don't think you know what you're doing. Eventually, Moses does relent and succumb to the instruction of God. And he goes back to his father-in-law and says, I want to go and check and see how my people are. And he says, go ahead. And so he takes his family, and halfway there, he, uh, he has this occurrence where God seems very unhappy with Moses and his family because they themselves are about to go speak as ambassadors of the covenant promises of God. And they have not been obedient in observing the covenant sign of that promise. And so God's anger is turned to Moses. Again, a woman intercedes, Zipporah intercedes, God uh, uh, is gracious, 
and allows Moses, it seems like at this point, Moses by himself goes, meets up with Aaron on his way to Pharaoh, but it seems like Zipporah and the kids go back home. They're mentioned later, but it seems like they uh, part ways after that uh, traumatic occurrence at the campsite. Moses gets to the elders and says, okay, this is what God has said, and here's the evidence of it. And Aaron, who is kind of a more uh, um, eloquent spokesman, Aaron intercedes and says, hey, watch, look, do this, do this. And he shows him the signs that God, in fact, has sent Moses, and now Aaron, to come and speak the message that God was going to deliver his people from slavery. The elders believe. The people believe. In fact, the people believe to the point where they probably put down their tools, probably put down their tools and go and start worshiping. God cares about us. And he's about to set us free. I'm done with the bricks. Well, Moses and Aaron go and speak to Pharaoh that message. We're going to go worship God now, and we are not going to be your workforce anymore. And Pharaoh, with no mixed expression, absolutely denies that. I want you to understand that there's not a debate that happens between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. There's not a, there's not a, a political uh, um, a dialogue that goes back and forth. Well, we'll give you this time off, and we'll give you these, and we'll, we'll try to lift this workload. We'll try to make things more pleasant. That's not at all what Pharaoh says. In fact, Pharaoh doubles down and says, you'll make the same amount of bricks you were making before, but now I'm not providing any straw. So if you want the binding agent, the filler, you're going to have to go do it yourself. Well, Moses and Aaron leave. And the foremen, these are the guys who worked under the bosses, but the foremen worked underneath them, and and they were Hebrew people who tried to make sure that things were going well. The foremen are now suffering persecution. They're being beaten and whipped because the brick quota isn't being met. Because every morning they're going out to gather their own straw to bring back in. And they're not getting the same amount of work done every day. That's where this story picks up. The foremen then come to complain to Pharaoh himself. Now, as we walk through this, we find something that looks very hopeless. We see the plea that the foremen make to Pharaoh... We see, secondly, a complaint made against Moses and also a complaint by Moses. And in all of those, we're going to finish chapter 5 with a feeling, a sense of hopelessness. But I don't intend to finish the sermon with chapter 5, but rather to step into chapter 6, verse 1. And I think that's reasonable to connect verse 1 with the previous, because what we're going to find is as we talked last week and we anticipate this week, supernatural intervention. We're going to find two methods to accomplish the commission that are unsuccessful. And then God is going to speak about what is going to be successful. Okay? So let's get started with the first one. The heartfelt cry of the foreman was not strong enough to accomplish the commission. The heartfelt cry. The foremen come in, in verse 15, and they look at Pharaoh and say, why do you treat us like this? No straw is given. Yet, we keep hearing, make bricks. And so, the people are being beaten every day. But it's not even their fault. That resonates, right? That makes perfect sense to us. 
your slave force had already been worked to its extent, and then you take away some supply and say, make the same amount or else. You know the passage in the New Testament says, fathers, don't frustrate your children to anger. This is what it's talking about. Don't give them an impossible task and then punish them for not accomplishing it. Yet, Pharaoh had done exactly that. And frankly, I don't see this explicitly, but it's awfully plain to me that Pharaoh is okay with a lot of Hebrew people just dying. Right? I mean, that's pretty plain from the fact that he wanted to murder some of the kids. It's pretty plain that when the, the boys couldn't be murdered, then he just said, well, let's work them literally to death. And then here it becomes more plain. Let's give them an impossible task. When they don't complete it, we'll just beat them. And so now they will have been exhausted by an impossible project. And at the end of the day, when they don't meet the quota, they'll just be beaten. And there were probably numerous Hebrew people who were literally dying at work. This seems like a reasonable objection. As parents, we're in this stage just right now where the youngest child in our home um, has this really impassionate plea. He has this go-to case that he makes when there's something he wants that he can't have. He looks us in the face with all sincerity and says, but I want it! And he believes that. Down to his toes, he believes that. Dad and mom, if you would just hear what I'm saying, I want it! And he makes this really passionate plea. And here the foremen come and they speak to Pharaoh and they make what I think is a very legitimate, passionate plea. They're blunt in their approach and it reminds us of how blunt Aaron and Moses had been. You remember we talked last week about how rare it was that you would have these two subjects coming to the king and saying, all right, here's what we insist on. Well, it was kind of a cultural thing. There wasn't a sense of maybe political correctness. That was politically correct. To go to the king as the judge, bring your criticism, even if it was a criticism against him, and say, this is what we expect. So here the foremen come and they bring this criticism. They bluntly state, in fact, Pharaoh... Your last order regarding brickmaking is the reason we're in this problem. So how does Pharaoh respond? Well, you're right. The brick quota was already so high. And then I took the straw away. And now every morning is filled with straw gathering. And you bring a good point. He doesn't, does he? He says, you're lazy. And in case you didn't hear it the first time, he says, you're lazy. A second time. And what does he attribute as an expression of laziness, worship. You're lazy. You just want to go worship because you're lazy. Now, I want to be careful not to miss the point because I'm going to tell you an innumerable amount of times as we go through this that the foremen aren't the point. Moses and Aaron aren't the point. Even Pharaoh in this account isn't exactly the point. Here's what is the point. What kind of king is Pharaoh? What kind of king? And and you should think seriously about that question. What kind of king is Pharaoh? Because as we conclude what kind of king is Pharaoh, and as we study on further in the scripture, 
it'll help us answer the question, what kind of God is Yahweh? So the point here, this absolute non-negotiable defiance of reasonable objection tells us what kind of King Pharaoh is. And that matters because it's going to kind of tell us what kind of God Yahweh is. Pharaoh had kept the people in bondage as an absolute dictator. And they thought, maybe if we go make a really sincere, heartfelt plea to the king, to Pharaoh, maybe our situation will be improved, sort of like it had been promised to us by God through Moses. But Pharaoh is the kind of king who is an absolute dictator, who won't be reasoned with. And as I move away from this point and this hopeless attempt to to fulfill the commission, I want to say to all of you, our sin is the same way. Our sin is the same way. Our sin, the, the allure of sin, isn't willing to negotiate and say, all right, I'll take Saturdays between 9 and noon. The rest of the time, go ahead and practice righteousness and holiness. Our sin will consume and devour and oppress as much as possible. Our sinning is a horrifying taskmaster. What kind of sin ours is helps us understand what kind of God Yahweh is. And so there is a hopelessness in thinking, I can reason, I can negotiate with what oppresses me and things will get better. It is unreasonable. But it causes us, when we see the failure of this first one, the impassionate plea of the foreman, it causes us to say again, what kind of God is Yahweh? Now let's go on to the second one, which is unsuccessful. That is the one where the foreman leave the room and they then talk to the messenger, Moses. So our second point, the frustration of the messengers, plural, is not strong enough. The frustration of the messengers. There's two messengers that deliver their expression of frustration. The first one is uh, the foreman. The foreman leave the, the throne room, the, 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 uh, the, the palace chamber, and they walk out, and Moses and Aaron are outside waiting. And the foreman look at them immediately and take a finger pointed directly in their face and say, this is your fault. What we were experiencing before was survivable. But we won't survive this. Look at verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, may the Lord, might Yahweh, the one who sent you to save us, might he now look at you and judge? Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. You put a sword in their hands to kill us. I think that one verse tells us so much about the culture that was present before Moses goes to Pharaoh the first time. Sure, we're a slave labor force, but we're living. In fact, our presence and the things we accomplished for the Egyptians made us seem like a sweetness in the land. Well, yeah, right? Of course. Now we stink. And before, it was like Pharaoh didn't have a sword in his hand to kill us, but now he seems to. What does that mean? I thought about that this week. 
Why do they all of a sudden feel like he has a sword in his hand to kill them when he's obviously already been decreeing the babies be thrown into the river and he's been decreeing that the work labor be doubled and decreeing that if they don't do it, they're beaten sometimes to death. How all of a sudden do they perceive now he has a sword? Here's what I suppose. As they were sweet in the land, there would have been a significant objection among the national people if Pharaoh had gone about just killing them. I think that's evident by the fact that the midwives were unwilling to do it. Oh, I I don't think this will pass the test of our people if we kill the babies. Or if Pharaoh just takes out and says, all right, I'm just going to go take the soldiers and just behead my 10,000 Hebrew people today. I think the reason that wasn't happening is because the people were considered a blessing in the country. Look at all the work they do for us. Now, Pharaoh and all the leaders can say, look at them, they're lazy. They just want to go worship. They're not even making as many bricks as we say anymore. Things have really turned. These people are not that good for us. And the foremen go, Pharaoh will not have a revolt of his people if he decides to just kill us. I suppose something like that. The foremen turn and fix the blame for that squarely on Moses and Aaron. And they even call on Yahweh to judge them. So what do Moses and Aaron do? Well, they take the next step. And the next human endeavor in trying to remedy what they're experiencing. So first, frustration toward the messenger. And then we see in verse 22 and 23, there is a frustration of the messenger. So in this second point, we have frustration toward the messengers, Aaron and Moses. And now we're going to read in verse 22, the frustration of the messenger to God himself. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord... Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came, the since I came seems to imply that he, it's, there's been some time that's passed between when he first went to Pharaoh and when the foreman went. Seems to be some significant amount of time has passed. He says in verse 23, For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. You have not delivered your people at all. Now, would you please just note, maybe you want to underline in your Bible, how many times Moses uses the word you in verse 22 and 23. Once would have been too many. The Bible first says, Moses turned to the Lord. I don't want you to assume that that meant Moses had to go back to the mountain or Moses had to go somewhere private. Literally, Moses heard the complaint about the circumstances and turned and pointed his finger at God. This is similar to the account in the garden when God shows up and says, Adam, it seems there's been sin, and Adam turns and says, well, it's her fault. And then God goes to Eve and she says, well, it's Satan's fault. That seems a little similar to this one. The foremen come out and they say, Moses and Aaron, this is your fault. They don't say this is Pharaoh's fault. Moses and Aaron, this is your fault. Moses and Aaron hear the complaint. They're obviously hurt and offended by it. And their response is to turn to God and say, God, this is your fault, your fault, 
your fault, your fault. Moses had been told already that Pharaoh wasn't going to buy into the plan. What Moses seems to be unprepared for is that there was going to be a cruel consequence for making the request. Moses seems caught off guard by that. I would just say, just real quickly, Christian, I don't want you to be caught off guard by that. The promise of God is certain. But the pleasure of a peaceful life as a pilgrim and a sojourner in this current life is not certain. You can have a joy that outruns the hardship, but not a joy that guarantees there won't ever be any. And I've shared with you before, C.S. Lewis says of Christ, he is not safe, but he is always good. And Pharaoh see, or Moses seems to be struggling a little bit because he assumed that the road to fulfilled promises wouldn't include hardship. And I don't want you to be caught off guard by that. He says, ever since you brought us here, some time seems to have passed. There is in these words a clear and startling shift Moses puts the blame on God. How tragic. What, what could Moses plainly have done? He said, Pharaoh is a tyrant. He is a dictator who would just as soon kill all of us as accommodate this request. Moses doesn't blame Pharaoh. How sad is that? But it's common. Hurricane Ian just hit the western coast of Florida. And when natural disasters like that take life on a wide scale, there are always people who say, come on, if there's really a God who's really in control, how do you explain that? And what happens is we become the people who don't blame sin itself and the curse that we've all willingly participated in. Instead, we turn to God and say, if you were real and if you were in control, that wouldn't happen. And so we can't throw a lot of stones at Moses because, honestly, we have a lot in common with Moses. However, what Moses does is, without excuse... What we have here is finger pointing and blame shifting that comes when there's people who feel hopeless. God says, go say to the king, let all of the Hebrew people go. We're going to go into the wilderness. We're going to worship God. We're going to become a nation. And we're not going to stay here and be the slave force for you anymore. And they go and they do that. And it doesn't seem to be successful. And so now they feel hopeless. Now, as I move away from this point, can you keep in mind that Moses is the one writing this? Far removed from its happening. He's writing this in the wilderness. He's writing about the day when he had lost all hope 
and turned and wags his disgusting finger in the face of holy God. And he's now been set free miraculously from Egypt and is in the wilderness on the way to the completed promise of the covenant. And he's writing these words. What a humbling expression it must have been. But there's going to be a generation that needs to read those words. Because they're going to struggle with that same sense of hopelessness. They're going to doubt. Is God really going to do as he said and and when? And it's written for every believer. Who is sooner or later going to have to learn. God's timing will only sometimes coincide with our expectations. God's timing will only sometimes coincide with our expectations. The good news is that Jesus Christ provides definitive and certain fulfillment of his promises. Before I move away from this point, would you quickly turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3? 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, and the, the heading is the day of the Lord. So it's reasonable that all of the biblical revelation, that the day of the Lord is coming. The day when God will, in Christ, make every enemy his footstool. It's coming. Yet, millennia have passed. And the Holy Spirit gives Peter these words in chapter 3. Uh, let's, look at, let's look at verse 3. Know this, that first of all, so the day of the Lord is coming. However, first of all, scoffers will come in in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say this, where, or maybe more, relevant as we're thinking right now when is the promise of this coming how much longer are you going to say god's going to do this without seeing it happen before you just stop saying god's going to do this all things are continuing as they were from the beginning they'll say nothing's changing look down to verse 8 But do you overlook this fact, beloved? This is for you. This is not to the scoffer. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. I mean, time is in God's hands. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness. He's patient, though. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance as has been provided. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned and they'll dissolve. The earth and its works will be, that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and 
hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which, in which righteousness dwells. I think the significance here is God's servants conforming themselves to God's timing. Ever since you sent me, it's been harder, not easier. That is Moses saying, when is it going to happen already? Now, as I thought about that, I thought about the children in the room, young people, young people. And you can define whether you're in the category or not by whether this illustration fits you. You know, kids, you might have a really hard time with promises because you tend to think about the world in very uh, um, abstract ways, very black and white, clear ways. So like this morning when you left home, if your children said, or if your parents said, you know, after church, instead of coming back home for lunch, let's go to Sam's Club and we'll have pizza and hot dogs. You can feed a family of 12 at Sam's Club, pizza and hot dogs, for about $4. <laughs> it does make me slightly nervous about what food it is, but I'm pretty stingy, so I'm good with it. And I got a lot of people in tow. So your parents might have said, instead of coming home, we're going to go to Sam's Club, and we're going to get lunch at Sam's Club. And then they got to church today, and someone in church informed them of a, a, an emergency a tragedy of some sort. Like, oh, okay, yes, I can help you. And then all of a sudden, the plan for this afternoon changed. And your kids will say, but you said. Now, here again, you can be in the category of kid based on whether this story is about you and your spouse or you and your children. But you said. And that's because, here, here I want you to hear, that's because your parents do say things. They intend to do but they don't know and can't control everything. But now we're talking about promises God makes. And he does know everything and is in control of everything. And so there's never an adjustment. There's never a correction. Oh, I, I thought I could promise everlasting life, but then I found out this other thing. I'm sorry, kids. I can't do what I thought I could. And that'll never happen with God. There must be supernatural intervention. And it's not going to be foreman saying, come on! And it's not going to be complaining, the foreman pointing at Moses. And it's not going to be Moses pointing at God. But the story doesn't end there. Let's go into verse 1. And let's see. The strong hand of the king will be enough. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. You should never handle Exodus chapter 5 independent from Exodus 6.1. Because Exodus 6.1 tells you everything God's already doing in what Moses thought hadn't started yet. Let me say that again. 
verse 1 tells you everything God is already doing when Moses thought it hadn't started yet. Exodus 6.1 says to Moses, Pharaoh's like defiant rejection of what I said is one part of the plan. The very fact you stood in front of him and he said, no way, is evidence I'm doing what I said. Because do you remember? I told you Pharaoh wasn't going to let it happen. But I also told you that it would require a stronger hand than yours to get it done. When he says twice by mighty hand, he is definitely telling Moses, don't forget what I said in the wilderness. I told you this already. I told you that he would seem powerful for a moment, but that's just one stage of all of this plan happening. And he says, now I will show you what I will do. Pharaoh will shove you out of the land by the time I'm done. That, that gives me goosebumps. I tend to be a touch of a romantic, but that gives me goosebumps. The king who seems to rule over everything, I'm about to supernaturally intercede for you, and by the time I'm done, he's going to be packing your bags. What Yahweh is doing is going to become all the more plain and clear to Moses because Pharaoh has had a complete and final refusal of the command. Because Pharaoh said, absolutely not, then it will be clear that Moses and Aaron, remember, remember Moses thought, this won't get done because I'm not a good speaker. And God says, okay, you take Aaron. Okay, maybe now it's going to get done. And then the foremen who have been providing so much good work, they go and say, hey, we've, we've been good for you. Can, can we get this done by being here? No compliance at all from Pharaoh. And that is helpful for us. Because what if Aaron had been a really good speaker? And he had convinced Moses, you know what? Wow. You could sell water to a drowning man. Aaron, good job. You can go. What is the book of Exodus? What is the account of our God? But Pharaoh doesn't do that. And the very fact that he doesn't is going to make it even more plain to us what God is doing. What Yahweh is doing to Pharaoh is allowing him to make his resolve clear so that in due time the resolve of his will can testify that God was the strong arm that made the exodus happen. Ours is a God who will have every decree of his will realized. Ours is a God who will have every decree of his will realized. Now, today's text has been a good lesson in patience and timing. But I want to read for you what we have been studying on uh, Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, we're going through historic confessions of the Christian faith. 
And this one in particular we have been studying on Wednesday nights in the adult Bible study, and I'll read part of it for you right now. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he's neither the author of sin, nor has fellowship with any in their sin. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things. And his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decrees. That is a confession of Christianity that says God can do all he wills to do. Moses is learning that not only can God do all he decrees to do, but God can do it when he decrees to do it. The commission laid out before Moses and then Aaron requires supernatural intervention. Today, the issue that is solved in this text is precisely what is supernatural intervention. It is God's decreed strong arm accomplishing his will. The question for us I don't think it's so much about the promises eventually happening. I think the question for us is about waiting. Um, Let me give you an example and then a scripture to finish. And I've got like 16 minutes, so we'll do a lot of scripture. (laughs) That was was an amusing laugh. 16 minutes. (laughs) Funny. Waiting. I want to say a word about waiting. Um, You know, I've sometimes wondered about that text in Corinthians that says, there's no temptation ever come to you that isn't common, but with every temptation, God will make for you a way of escape. But then there's very little said about, like, the escape door. And I thought so often, like, yes, please, show me the escape. And the more I think about it, the more I am convinced that the promise of that text is patient hope. Patient hope. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But with all of the temptation that comes to you, God will, through patient hoping, make for you a way of escape. There are so many things about sin that promise instant satisfaction. Substance abuse, terrible use of money, gambling, compulsive purchasing, pornography. There's so many things that promise instant gratification. And the way of escape is not instant gratification, but patient hoping. Patient hoping. The thing that's being promised to me today is right here and right now. But I'm patiently looking forward to what's coming and it's easy now for me to see what is mine in Christ is better than what is being offered right now. 
There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. But God will, through patient hoping in his guaranteed word, make for you a way of escape. Now let me finish then with a promise from Isaiah, a word of encouragement. Because I think what we see in the foreman, I think what we see in Aaron and Moses, is that they became undone by impatience. So, Isaiah 40 came to my mind, and you're all going to know it. Have you not known, have you not heard, that our Lord is an everlasting Lord? That's a reference to his timelessness. Our Lord is an everlasting Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is awesome. But those who wait on the Lord, patiently hoping, will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. It seems undeniable that Moses sinned when he turned and blamed God. In the moment of temptation, he did not take the way of escape. Moses could have said, in counsel to his own soul, God is going to do what he said. And I am here waiting. And when I wait, my strength will be renewed. I will see the promise revealed. And I will run without ever being tired again. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would build in me, uh, in our elders, deacons and deaconesses, teachers, counselors, a patient, joyful waiting for all of your promises. All that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And that when we're tempted to satisfy ourselves with something that is fleeting and empty and ungodly, just because it promises immediate results, that we would be so transformed by Christ and so guided by your Spirit and your Word that we would always find easy the way of escape. patient hoping. So as we read this account of one of your servants, a sinner such as us, who in his moment of impatience cursed the very promise, I pray that we would be guarded by your word and your spirit from imitating that. But that we would, with joy, press forward, with hope deferred, with glad encouragement of each other, fixing our eyes on what is to come instead of what is empty and lacking. But together, as you've knit us together, to encourage each other, to walk and not grow weary. In Christ's name, amen. Would you please stand?